The Dr. Taz Show. The podcast. Dr. Taz. Your good health journey starts now. Here's Dr. Taz. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to Superwoman Wellness, where on every episode of the show, we are going to uncover the secrets to being superpowered and being the superwoman that you're meant to be. Joining me today is Dr. Katherine Steiner Adair, who's a clinical psychologist and author of The Big Disconnect, Protecting Childhood and Family Relationships in the Digital Age. Dr. Steiner Adair is an internationally recognized clinical psychologist. She's a school consultant and an author, and her award-winning book, The Big Disconnect, Protecting Children and Family Relationships in the Digital Age, which was, by the way, cited as Wall Street Journal's top 10 best nonfiction in 2013. Dr. Steiner Adair examines ways in which the wonders of technology and media also change how children learn and grow, and she shows parents and educators how to reap the benefits of tech while reducing the risk it it poses at every stage of child development. She's traveled across the world and been on tour over the last six years, and I am thrilled to bring her to the show because we as parents all need help navigating this one. Welcome to the show, Dr. Steiner Adair. Oh, thank you, Dr. Taj. Delighted to be with you. Well, we are thrilled, and I've got to tell you, this is hitting incredibly close to home. We have a middle schooler, and trying to navigate uh, what is okay technologically and what is not okay technologically has been a huge challenge and put a little bit of a rift between us over the last couple of years. Uh, we've had an issue where it sort of played out in my favor, where it got out of hand with some of her kids at school. And so I'm, I, mm-hmm. for me personally, and for many of, of the moms out there or for parents out there who listen to the show... This is this is an important topic, and this is one that splits us as a community with what is and is not appropriate digitally. Mm-hmm. And we need we need the experts. I have my opinion. I've looked at the research and the science, but we need the psychological, the educational impact of this digital age and what it's doing to our children. So I am honored, thrilled, excited. I'm jumping up and down over here to have you on the show. So welcome. <laughs> Thank you. How old is your child? So I have a 10 and 11-year-old, but it's more of the issue with the 11-year-old girl. Sure. Yep. I hear it everywhere. You are not alone. Well, good. (laughs) That's comforting. But give us your perspective. Tell us what you think. Um, I don't want to talk about me the whole show for sure, but I think in general, you know, what are you seeing? I think that's what I want to know. What are you seeing? You're outside outside of our home, outside of the school community. What are you seeing out there and what are your concerns? Well, one of the things I see parents, particularly in your age group, although every year it seems to get younger, now I hear this from parents of 8-year-olds and 9-year-olds, confusion about socially isolating their children and their, their, like, superwoman smart mom instinct, which is, these kids are too young for this, and we want them talking to people and making eye contact and having play dates where they're you know, running around or playing, you know, hopscotch or doing whatever it is they would do, not sitting on a sofa next to each other, showing them the next cool thing on YouTube. And I think the parental pressure is really hard, particularly in middle school. In fact, one of my favorite organizations for middle school parents is called Wait Until Eight. And it was started by a bunch of moms. And the premise of it is just wait until eighth grade to give your... A fully loaded phone because the reality is they are not, in my thinking at least, old enough, mature enough to manage all the incredibly enticing and seductive apps out there for kids that age. And 
we all behave very differently on our smartphones and our computers and our devices than we do face-to-face. And we know now from research that these devices um, really are causing a lot of unnecessary and uh, difficult social drama in -hmm. the lives of middle schoolers that we really need to pay attention to. So how do we convince a school community or a peer group? Like, what is the science? Right. What does the research say? Because, you so, know, there's there's a lot of just, well, I did this for my older children, so I have to do it for the younger children. How do we convince a community that wait until eight or eighth grade, usually around 14 years, 13, 14 years or so, that mm-hmm. that's the right time? Well, you know, as you said, there's great research out there. And one of the things that we know from research is if you can get just 10% of parents in your child's school to to sign on to this idea, that will mitigate against some of the social isolation. If you can get a third of the parents in your 6th grade, your 7th grade cohort to sign on to this, this is a parent-run thing that you can bring to any school community. They have amazing research about why you want to all and just, you know, really wait until your child's 13 or 14. And the, the biggest concern people have is social isolation. Well, you don't have to socially isolate a child, nor should you. And there are tons of really good phones, including a smartphone, although I think investing in a smartphone for a child this age is, is something you might want to think about. But there are great phones that are designed for middle schoolers, for elementary school kids, where they have your phone number, where they can text caretakers, where you can decide they can text certain kids. Right now, parents can have and should have a lot of understanding and control over what their middle school kids are doing with their phones. And that's made parenting so much harder. So the easiest thing to do, of course, is to start very slowly and start with a family responsible use agreement. And there are templates for that in my book. There are templates on the web. And the the biggest place I see parents making a mistake is that they don't stick to their guns. So if they see that their child has posted an embarrassing picture of somebody, they don't take the phone away for a day or two. Mm. They don't follow mm-hmm. through on the contact. This is your phone. It is a privilege. Here's what it's for. Let's talk about everything it's not for. This is not for posting a picture of you and your friends having pizza when you know that other person will be crushed. Right. This is not for, you know, saying mean things about people. This is not for ranking people. This is not for gossip. This is not for cheating academically. There are a lot of things these phones are being used for that they're not for. And here's the consequences. And let's sit down now when you're not um, learning from a mistake And we're talking about consequences to decide what makes sense. And then post it on the fridge like you post the job chart. And I think, you know, there are some other things parents, particularly middle schoolers, want to do. You want to make sure parents understand that when um, kids have sleepovers, you want to collect their phones. That's a time, especially in middle school, where a lot of bad stuff goes down on social media. So, you know, that's on the parents. I think what schools can do and need to do, and a lot of my work in schools is changing the parent-school partnership because we have lost the boundary between home and school. And in fact, for kids today, the whole experience of going to school has flipped. It's really fascinating. When, you know, when my children went to school, they're in their late 20s and 30s, and certainly when we went to school, all the drama happened at school. And you went home, and home was boring. 
and you had to wait till the next day, or maybe you could call your one friend on the telephone, you know, to find out what you were wearing the next day, or whatever it was. Now, what kids tell me, particularly in middle school, is that school is more like the old-fashioned home sanctuary, where there are adults reminding you, be kind, think before you speak, don't do anything that would embarrass somebody. And then they go home, and they're flying solo in their devices. And they're on social media sites where on some of them you actually get more likes and followers if you are nasty, if you do post an embarrassing picture, if you do say something sarcastic. So the values, the experience of where the safety zones are has flipped because when kids are alone, on screens, at home, on YouTube, with no filters, talking to people they don't know, going places we would never want them to know, and it's very hard to know where they are even going, a lot of things can happen. So I think that uh, one of the things that schools are doing more of is teaching digital citizenship, teaching digital, digital literacy, teaching cultural competencies, also teaching social-emotional tools to learn how to handle what goes on. But I think that parents have to be more aware that when their kids are left to their own devices, they will literally go into their devices, and that's when kids can get hurt, hurt psychologically and get trouble and, you know, really lose some of the important free time or other time to do other things that young kids and middle schoolers need to be doing. So we've talked a lot about the phone and waiting until eighth grade for the phone or getting a middle school appropriate phone, which I'd be yeah. curious as to your recommendations on those. That's all great advice. And, you know, within a parent community or school community, you know, what's the role of the school when it comes to the community, you know, of their middle schoolers? Because I think we're that's the group we're talking the most about, that high-risk middle yeah. school group. What is the yeah. responsibility of the school? Where does the school weigh in, or where do you feel like educators and school people should, should yeah. weigh into this? It's such a great question. And actually, I'm just now beginning a series of of consulting with schools that they're just revving up. You know, our responsible use contract isn't strong enough. Kids sign it. They don't buy into it. Parents sign off on it like a health form. It's just not having the impact we need. So I, I think that uh, one of the things that schools um, need to do uh, a little bit more thoughtfully, and this is all new, so everybody's learning together, is really sort of do a tech assessment and really look at how they partner with parents. And you know, one of the things I'm a big fan of is, yeah, you know, most parents go to school at least once a year, and it's the back-to-school night or the day when they go to school and meet their teachers. And that's a wonderful time for um, teachers and, and the div head or whoever it is to really talk parents through a responsible use contract. And the contract isn't just for kids. It has to be for parents, too. Because one of the things that happens is that parents also, like kids, get involved in, um, you know, saying unkind things about teachers, gossiping about each other. They have the mommy chat rooms that cause so much anxiety and angst and misinformation. And schools really need to talk about the fact that we are partners in a different way because we have lost the boundary between home and school. So things that go on online actually affect school. And things that go on in school carry on at home. 
So we have to work much more closely together, and we have to be much more clear with each other that we co-own things that go on online. So different schools that I've worked with have come up with different ways of defining those boundaries and defining the collaboration, but it really needs to be clearly specified because if something happens on the weekend and it's posted online, Mm -hmm. then it affects the week. It's not, you know, and schools have to deal with it and, and, and parents have to deal with it. So I'm seeing schools also doing a lot more parent education. One of the things I love to help schools set up is the, you know, uh, local junior high school genius bar at your own school, where maybe once a month your tech educator has an open forum, you know, Friday after drop-off, where parents can come in and learn about parental controls, learn how to set up filters. Mm-hmm. Learn what's reasonable to let a child do. Learn what, hey, mom, I need my phone for homework really means, which, you know, nine times out of ten, they don't. But it must be parents are taught about this. You think, oh, okay. And, you know, in middle school, you're very concerned about study habits and kids being on two or three screens at a time. You don't want that happening. Um, so I think schools have to do much more parent education and also teach parents about the new apps that come out because, you know, every couple of days, weeks, whatever, um, there are different apps. And some of these apps are fine and great and designed for middle schoolers, and some of them are really not. So that kind of parent-school collaboration is very important. Well, I think these are. this is such helpful advice for so many of us, you know, really trying to figure out what the right piece of this is. So there's the issue of phones, which we focused on. Then there's the issue of social media. What if a child has Mm -hmm. social media on a laptop or on a iPad? And those are also the devices that are needed for homework. How do you navigate? How is that being navigated? You know, what is your recommendation there? How much uh, oversight? What are the best tools for oversight that need to be used there? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I'm increasingly, you know, a fan of I mean, it depends on your school system, but some school systems have Chromebooks where kids go home with a device where everything they need to do for homework is on that device and nothing else is on the device. That's the easiest approach because then they're not on um, Snapchat or they're not on YouTube watching videos, book screening while they're doing their homework, or they're not having pop-ups and email or texting or whatever, you know, conversations on the side. There's an app for phones called The Circle which gives you complete control over exactly what your kids can do on the phone, who they can text. They can text between 3.15 and 3.25. And it, it's a very comprehensive app for your phone. For your um, screens and for at-home learning and homework, it's a little harder, but you can shut down certain aspects of your screen, notifications, certainly turn off notifications um, on, on, a, you know, on the iBooks, et cetera, And the best thing to do really is for schools to hopefully teach parents how to do this or go to your local Genius Bar if you have Apple products or call 1-800-MY-APPLE. And they can tell you very quickly how to set up the kind of differentiated use that you want. But you can't shut it all down. There are different things you can control. And the thing that you really want to work on with your kids in middle school, and this is where a responsible use agreement comes in, is trust. And self-regulation. And this is the hardest thing for middle schoolers. It's the hardest thing for parents, too. It's for all of us. 
These devices are neurologically designed to grab our attention, some more than others. The constant rollover on YouTube is a great example. Snap is another good example, where the way they make money is just keeping you engaged. And it's such a powerful stimulant to a little brain, to an adult brain. Yeah, there's our developing. <laughs> exactly right. So what you really need to do, and what I've helped a lot of schools do, is actually teach kids much more. This is your brain on tech. And right now, particularly beginning in middle school, you're the boss of your brain. And you've got till the age of 25 or so to really grow and nurture the smartest, most creative brain you can have. And they're really critical years. And there's some really important superhighways that are going to develop now if you protect them, like the capacity for singular attention and deep focus and reflection. And, you know, you're old enough to get around your parents if you want to, which is why I tell kids, you're the boss. But here is what's at stake for you. And when you teach them about the impact of technology on their brains and have them think about their future and what you want to be and what your dream job would be. And, you know, it's like not drinking when you're in middle school. It wrecks your brain. You get addicted. It's not healthy. It's the same thing with social media and certain aspects of gaming and you know, and just sort of that kind of psychological dependency that kids are developing more and more on these devices that are undermining their capacity for creativity, for deep reading, for just being alone and daydreaming, noodling around in their own little head, their own little soul. And I have found that when you speak to children in middle school and high school, you know, in a respectful way and give them really good research, that gets them the most interested in creating a healthier and approach to managing their own technology. I love that. So what are some tangible tools? Okay, so we've talked a lot about electronics and phones and having a specified computer for work that doesn't have access to anything else on it. We've talked a lot about all of that. So those are all great practical tools. And I think anybody who's out there and listening to this today, I hope you've caught the nuggets here. There's so much, but I'll summarize it to the best. Wait until eighth of kids in middle school, early middle school don't need phones. Or if you're going to do a phone, even I would say in eighth grade, make sure it's middle school appropriate where there's limited access to Mm -hmm. or no access, I would even say to social media. Uh, computers used for schoolwork should be for schoolwork only and have the restrictions and filters on them so they can't go on YouTube and they can't go on all these other sites. So I think that's equally important. And then I think, again, getting a school and parent community together so everybody's on the same page. So those are, and then responsible use agreements. I think we haven't done that yet as a family. I know the school has done it, but I don't think we've done it as a family. So those are all very practical, tangible things that we can do. Now, a lot of the moms and I, are trying to find alternatives to keep our daughters and sons away from these gadgets. And one of our answers has been sports. So get them in sports, get them in mm-hmm. different activities. You know, what are some other things that don't necessarily have to be scheduled, but that we could do to encourage the right development of the brain where it can be it can be innovative, it can be creative, it doesn't have to be stimulated every 15 seconds. What are some of the other maybe more tangible practical tools that we could put into place, you know, to help our children? Well, you know, I think one of the things that kids love is when parents are curious about what interests them and not to make assumptions about what interests them. I mean, some kids love sports, but a lot of kids 
don't love sports. But kids also are drawn to other things like drawing or baking or sewing or making things or robotics or science or the planet, you know, what's going on in the universe, what's going on ecologically. And I think what you want to try and do with middle schoolers especially is let help them and guide them to connect to the things the things in your community that will deepen their curiosity and and let it change you know let it let it change as they change but there's so many um wonderful programs in many communities whether it's at your JCC or community center or at universities now i had a son who loved legos and who was you know been got into gaming i thought uh oh how am i going to take this and he was a gifted gamer. It was part of why I wrote the book. I was terrified because he was so good at it. Um, and and redirected. So, you know, we were in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and so he was on a multi-generational robotics team with kids from Northeastern and MIT, and he was 11 or 12 at the time and got to go and compete at Disney World, you know, with these mm-hmm. wonderful older mentors. So you want to be looking for things like that where... Um, you're you're taking their interest, but sort of grounding it in a more creative and educational setting, and helping them also connect to other people who like what they like, but are a little further down the road, and who would love to mentor a younger person. I think those kinds of things are really important. And I also think that you need to make it so your children have to do that. It, and the best way to do that is to limit the amount of time they can be on screen that's not school-related. You know, in the olden days, you know, a lot of parents would say, well, pick one or two after-school activities and stick with it for, you know, three months and see if you like it. Right. It's a similar kind of thing. What happens, and what's very hard, is that since parents are so digitally distracted, and they're more digitally distracted often than their kids are, when parents are sort of plugged into their devices, and then kids are trying to get their parents' attention, they can't, then they literally plug into their devices. So a lot of parenting requires that we self-regulate better so that we can spend the time with our kids to figure out what they would like to do. Take a different kind of dance class. You've done ballet for so long, why don't you try hip-hop or jazz or tap? And, you know, really make sure that we are personally present to them so we can nurture their curiosity. The problem with technology is it will answer any question they have faster than we can. It might not be right. We might not like the way they answer their questions, but this is a generation of kids who are used to having their curiosity met at school. It's by teachers. At home, it's by computers. So we have to sort of step up and step in in some ways and be there for our kids in those hours, you know, after school, on the weekends, et cetera, to direct them into the things they're curious about. And then you can use technology to deepen their curiosity. That's a fabulous use of technology. Yes, I think that's amazing. And I and I know what a lot of the listeners are doing right now. They're probably got this little pit in their stomach like I do, because for all of you out there that I call super women, that we are juggling, we're running, we're trying to balance 50 million things at any given moment. How many of you, I can't see you all, but raise your hand if you've been guilty of disappearing in your own devices, in your own technology to get work done or to get an activity going or to arrange a play date, you know, things that have to get done. 
fun. But the example that mm-hmm. we're then setting is this disconnection from our children. And I know I am incredibly guilty of that because I always have so much on my plate as do so many women that I know today. Yeah. And so I think it's a of great course. reminder for us that to get our kids off technology, we are also going to have to find mm-hmm. a way to do that in the time that we've allotted for them. So I think that that's a great reminder for everybody in another great tangible tool, like no phones at dinner, no phones, maybe 30, 40 minutes after dinner. That's bonding time. That's communication time. Gather up the gadgets, put them all in one place. These are things that we're going to start today that I realize, I mean, we're already doing no phones at dinner, but just even the the after time where everyone starts to disappear again on their gadgets because it's their Mm -hmm. quote unquote downtime. They're all exhausted. I think that, um, that that we need to rethink as so many other people I know listening today. So I think that's an important point too, is that in the superwoman struggle, you know, we all have to be a little bit careful of relying on technology to buy us time and efficiency that may be again, stealing some of the energy and power from our children's brains. So Mm -hmm. I think that's like a big aha moment for me. Anything else that you think that we could use as advice as we all navigate this world? And we talked a lot about middle schoolers. You know, what are your thoughts before we leave today on both the elementary school community and the high school community? Do you have any perspective on those children as well? Well, there, there, there's tons for each, and it's all differentiated. So let me tell you some things that I think run across the board. Infants through, you know, off to college. I think as parents and moms, there are certain times in the day, and this is what I've learned. Yeah, I do focus groups with kids everywhere I go. I'm constantly updating my research, and I love to talk to kids before I talk to their parents. So I can really say, look, this is what I'm hearing from your kids, and it might not be what I heard in, you know, across the country the day before. But there are critical times in the day where I think if parents can try and uh, put their phones down, it really makes a difference. The children will feel like they matter more to you. And you, you want your kids to know that they're more important in those moments they need to know. And they can't always know because they're not always. But critical times, try and get up a half hour earlier than your children. Do whatever email you need to do. But that frantic morning time is so hard. Before we had these devices, now it's you know, 20 times harder. Try and at least for you, put your, be off your screen until the kids are out of your sight. And another important time, this is really true for elementary school age kids especially, is don't be on your phone in the car. Don't be on Bluetooth. You know, calling grandma, that's my exception. But, you know, don't be talking to work. I can't tell you the funny things I've heard kids and the not-so-funny things I've heard kids say about overhearing conversations that were not meant for their ears. And nothing tells a child that you are not interested in them when you get on the phone and start, you know, having fun with your sister on the phone or talking to somebody at work. And the problem with that, this is to when you pick your kids up too, if you're on the call, you won't get the download. You will not, you miss that incredible, important moment of connections where your kids are more likely than any other time of day other than bedtime to spontaneously tell you what's upsetting them or what's exciting them or what's new in their world. So don't be on your phone in the car. It's also better for your brain and for driving. And when you walk in the door from work, kids, whether they are four or 14, tell me, I don't go up and hug my mom anymore because she always goes, Shh, hold on, honey, I really want to hear what you have to say. Oh, no. Oh, you know? so it's awful. Yes. It's awful. Uh. So like, stand out in the rain, you know, <laughs> stand out in the snow. But don't walk in texting or in a conversation. These are little tricks, habits we've developed that are really straining our relationships with our kids. 
And you mentioned, Dr. Todd, yes, phones. I can always tell, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, when a child has learned the word hypocrite. Mm. Because they will say, my parents are such hypocrites. We have this rule, no phones at the table. And we don't, but they do. So don't be a hypocrite. We are their role models, you know, and, and, and we have to own that. And then the other one that really surprised me in the research I did the first time I interviewed a 1,000 kids between 4 and 18 and 250 18 to 30-year-olds was when bedtime. Don't text when you're reading a bedtime story. Don't be texting when your 22-year-old comes to say goodnight to you. They want that gods in heaven alls right with the world, you know, hug and tone of voice. And your tone of voice, your empathy literally dims. When you are texting, your capacity to hear your children, mom, which is why they have to go, mom, 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 you know, get louder, louder, later. Your hearing dims. Your sense of where you are in time and space gets diffused, which is why we say things when they're in the back of the car, like, oh, we're surprising the kids with a trip to Disney, and they hear it. So there's a lot for us to learn, but those times of transition in families are critical times. When we wake up, when we break bread, when we reconnect, when we go to sleep. And if you can get in the habit of putting your phone down and in another room, off your body, because a phone on your desk, a phone in your pocketbook, a phone in your back pocket will distract you, even if it is turned off. The research is really clear. So we need to literally put some space between us and our smartphones so we can reconnect in the space when we need it and our children need us the most, regardless of how old they are. Well, I love this information today. It's been incredibly helpful for me, even for our community, as I take what you've said today back to our school and to our parent community and to our family as well. I know we're going to put a lot of these points into action. I hope everybody out there listening today feels the same way. This is our greatest challenge right now as parents of middle schoolers Mm -hmm. and even going into high school. This is a public health nightmare. I've watched it in the exam room. And so I urge all of us, please, please, please get united on this. Don't make this a battle between parents or between schools. Let's all kind of come on the same page on this one and understand that this is a risk at this at these ages for these brains when not used in the right way. Dr. Steiner Adair, thank you so much for joining me today. If anyone wants to consult you or bring you into their school or their community or just reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, I have a web page that needs to be updated because I'm so much <laughs> to the web page. Um, and uh, that's probably that's the easiest way. My my email address is um, uh, Catherine. My first name is C-A-T-H-E-R-I-N-E, Catherine at csadare.com, but it's all on my webpage. Perfect. And that webpage for I the audience, if you could repeat that one more one more time, that webpage, it, if you could give us that. Is, the webpage is www.catherinesteineradare.com. All together. All right. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it for everybody else. Thank you for listening to this episode of Superwoman Wellness, which is now on Spotify as well. If you have questions about today's show, connect with me on Instagram or Facebook at Dr. Taz MD. And if you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it and share it with your friends. I will see you all next time.